There's, and that's just it. Using these tools, there's actually some really good stuff out there. Apparently. I mean. No. Well, and people, they have websites that people can share their images and, you know, sell them so that people can buy little licenses for them. So there's quite a few right. resources. He gave general guidelines so that you fall on the right side of the law, say, like 90% of the time, right? And, uh, I mean, it was very needed, especially for me, since I had been doing things wrong for a little while now. So... <laughs> I've gotten into the habit of suggesting that if you're using a YouTube video, just go ahead and download it and upload it to a... No? Can't say that? No? No? You're making a copy? copy. <laughs> well, copy, I thought if it's on right? YouTube, What's then my it's next sort of... Tip? Isn't it public domain at that point? No. no. Okay. No. Shock and awe. Don't say All right, this part's gonna get cut. <laughs> I, uh, I was very obligated to go check this out, but the first question he says to ask is, did you make a copy? Right. You're listening to Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching. In this episode, we are going to forge into a practical exploration of the various aspects of United States copyright standards through the lens of education. Before we dive in, let's get the prerequisite disclaimer out of the way. We are not lawyers, we are not experts in copyright law, and we are not the keepers of institutional policies. When in doubt, please consult your institution's copyright librarians, general counsel office, and or policy manuals. What we will be focusing on is establishing some plain language definitions related to copyright and share some strategies and resources for doing the work you need to do while minimizing the risk of copyright infringements. But before we get to the terminology, there's a question to ponder. How did we get here? Or to be more accurate, why does this issue spill into the land of instructional design at all? For me, I think it has a lot to do with the way IDs often work at the intersections of education, such as those between pedagogy and technology, design and delivery, subject matter expertise and facilitation of learning. When we collaborate with faculty and work toward a goal of best possible student learning outcomes, we engage in acts of creativity and transformation that frequently leverage the best possible learning materials. The challenge is in figuring out how to work with those materials in a way that respects the creator or creators and doesn't put an educator and their institution at risk of legal complications. And with that deep thought in mind, let's launch into a concept and vocabulary lesson. First and foremost is the evaluation as to whether you are making a copy of something at all. This used to be relatively straightforward in consideration to the physical nature and process for copying books or other print materials and using media from tapes or discs. However, as is true in so many other aspects of our lives, information and communication technologies have completely changed the picture. For example, posting a URL in your syllabus or online course site does not constitute making a copy of the material on the website. Next is the concept of public domain. A work is in the public domain if its copyright term has expired or if it has never been covered by copyright, such as works authored by the U.S. government. Expiration terms vary depending on several factors, including the type of work and when it was originally created. Works in the public domain may be used by anyone for any reason, since copyright does not apply. In Season 1, Episode 4, we briefly discussed Creative Commons licenses as applied to open educational resources. In a nutshell, Creative Commons licenses provide a simple, standardized way for creators to grant copyright permissions to their work. They are designed with straightforward use terms related to attribution requirements, commercial use restrictions, and allowance for derivative works. These licenses are extremely useful for educators to learn about because they provide a path for locating and using a hugely diverse body of creative works with little risk of copyright complications. For more information, check out creativecommons.org. Now, let's consider a couple situations in which an educator might choose to use materials 
without permission of the copyright holder. The first concept is the classroom use exemption in Section 110 of U.S. Copyright Law. This applies only to in-person classrooms in non-profit educational institutions and allows for the display or performance of copyrighted works. Playing a DVD in class, singing a song together, or holding up a book or piece of art would be permitted under this exemption, but distributing copies of these materials would not be permitted under this exemption. There are also provisions in Section 110 for using digital media in online or distance courses under the Technology, Education, and Copyright Harmonization Act, or TEACH Act for short. However, there are a number of specific restrictions and conditions associated with the TEACH Act, so we recommend you consult with a copyright or media specialist for guidelines appropriate to your institution. And lastly, we are going to touch on the section of the Copyright Code dealing with fair use. This is perhaps the most confusing and often misunderstood copyright-related concept in educational settings. As Heather Van Morick astutely observed in a blog post on Inside Higher Ed, some seem to think that anything is covered under fair use, like a copyright carte blanche, to do what they want with others' materials. Others interpret the flexibility as a constant threat looming over them, so they avoid utilizing copyrighted materials at all costs. However, the actual purpose of fair use is to preserve First Amendment rights of free speech and provide avenues for criticism, comment, news reporting, teaching, scholarship, or research. In practice, there are four primary factors that are used to determine whether use is fair. The purpose and character of a use, the nature of the copyrighted work, the amount and substantiality of the portion used in relation to the copyrighted work as a whole, and the effect of the use upon the potential market for or value of the copyrighted work. So, the decision to use or not use a copyrighted work under fair use essentially boils down to, it depends, and when in doubt, consult an expert. While there are admittedly many curious moving parts to copyright law and the use of materials in practice, the first step is really just developing awareness of and respect for ownership of creative works. In many ways, this conceptually mirrors the norms and practices we already engage in as academics and scholars in terms of acknowledging others' intellectual works. Just as we hope to model and instill good citation practices with our students, we have a responsibility to demonstrate ethical use of copyrighted materials in our teaching and learning environments. Welcome to this episode of Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching. My name is Jeanette Senecal from the Academic Innovation Team at ASU's College of Nursing and Health Innovation. Bravely exploring academically relevant copyright issues with me today are my colleagues, Celia Kachwaitiwa, Aaron Kraft, Stephen Crawford. All right. So on a scale of one to 10, with one representing relaxing on the beach with a cocktail of your choice and 10 representing a root canal without anesthesia, how uncomfortable do you find this topic? How do you avoid use paralysis? I'll start by saying as soon as we had that intro coming in, there was like this gray haze that just kind of came into the room. (laughs) (laughs) Mm, I would say it's like sitting on the beach with a mosquito buzzing in your ear the entire time. (laughs) Interesting analogy. (laughs) For, For me, I'm comfortable enough with copyright that it doesn't bother me but so much But I do know that there are concerns looming just over the horizon that I need to be aware of. I know there are certain things that we can do, and I know we'll talk about those things to protect yourself and your institution as well. So that's the important thing to think about. I think for me, when I first learned about things like the TEACH Act and copyright law, there wasn't a lot out there yet as far as electronic resources go. So I think now I try to pay more attention to 
how we're using the electronic side of it because I'm I'm more comfortable and aware of using actual text like books. But when it comes to the electronic resources, I often find myself having to look back and check is this allowable? Right. I think my way of coping with it was to make up my own rules, apparently, because as we found out, if you listen to the previous episode, uh, I was giving bad advice to faculty. I was telling them to go ahead and download copies of YouTube videos that they would try to embed in their course. And, I, and there was a couple reasons why I was suggesting that. Uh, I honestly thought it was okay because I thought anything on YouTube is public domain, which is wrong. And secondly, I thought that because the videos were basically sort of behind a wall. They're within a course, an LMS. You have to be a student. You have to be enrolled to even access the course. And I thought, since it wasn't being widely distributed, that it was okay to do that. And I was wrong. So any faculty that I've talked to in the past few years, just ignore that piece of advice. I, you know, I can understand that point of view quite easily on why you would feel that way. You know, it's like any other topic. As we dive into it, we're looking for the right answer. And I remember when I started on this copyright journey many years ago of trying to figure out what is fair use, what is the TEACH Act, what is allowed, what can I do? I discovered over time that the answer is every answer you get is almost correctly, is correctly stated. And I say that from a certain point of view of lawyers are going to tell you, do nothing. And the reason why they're going to tell you don't do anything, always get permission, is because their main goal is to minimize the risk. And depending on what you're doing, that may be exactly the right thing to do. There are others who are going, this is my work. This is what I do, you know, so therefore I can do whatever I want with it. And while you're corrected as your work, but if you wrote it for a journal and the journal had you sign over copyright and you didn't realize that, you technically no longer own your own words. And so that's a very difficult concept to, to, to come to terms with. And with YouTube, you see some of the videos, especially from government agencies that are out there that are posted to YouTube. If you go to the main site of that agency, you may be able to download that video from their site without permission and just because it's a link there saying download this video. Whereas another video, you may have to go use some external to, uh, tool. And then, of course, YouTube has its own problems with copyright, but on what is and what is not allowed up there. So it, it's so confusing. I agree. There's definitely a lot of ambiguity. And part of my learning journey with copyright is finding a way to make peace with the ambiguity and to rely on the best possible evidence that's available at the time. You know, and, and still you made a comment about the electronic resources. And I think one of the problems, I mean, copyright is kind of clear when you own something physical. You know, you when you physically own it, it's kind of clear. But the problem with electronic resources is in some cases, even if we quote unquote buy it, we don't own it. We just have a license to use it. So copyright almost doesn't apply in some cases because we now have a contract, a license agreement that says what we can and cannot do with it. And it may differ very differently from what we would think is fair use. It understandably gets murky. Think about when you were in a real uh, physical classroom, maybe in school, and the teacher would have movie day or maybe they were showing, maybe your history teacher is showing you a film you know, that has some sort of historical accuracy to it. And that was okay. Like the teacher bought the the DVD or the movie or the VHS, if you're, you know, a Betamax. <laughs> Betamax. <laughs> and wheeled in that large cart with the TV on it and showed it to the 
class and it was technically okay because they weren't distributing copies, if I understand correctly. Yep, you, you've got it correct. However, you can't do that in an online classroom necessarily is what I'm getting here. Is that is that right? Let me back up to the physical classroom part of it because from my understanding, there has to be a reason for that being shown and there has to be a connection to the content that's being taught. Okay, so it can't just be movie day. Exactly. Oh, okay. So let's say you grab Finding Nemo and it's just movie day, you want to show it. What I've learned is that one, you do need the permission to show it because you are showing it to a larger audience. Okay. Two, let's say you wanted those kids to bring in a couple dollars to buy some pizza and have, you know, pizza and movie. They can't necessarily do that because it appears as though they're having to pay for that movie viewing. Somebody's as well. profiting from exactly. that work. So there has to be a disconnect between, you know, Somebody buying snacks and or the distributor. everything has to be, you know, free. But even with the physical classroom, you do have to be somewhat careful on how you're using that video. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, you, yeah, that's a good point. You just can't show it because you can, and and you can't show it to anybody. It's got to be to the people in the classroom yes. who are registered in that course. It needs to have an educational purpose, as you stated earlier. And and usually, most of what you're going to show may come from a library holding, mm-hmm. and, and that usually gives you more cover than just something from your personal collection. But as you mentioned with the online course, I mean, that was an early problem that we dealt with how do we handle film appreciation type of, you know, and, and, and film critic type uh, courses? Thankfully, a little thing called Netflix came about about that time frame. And we said, assign the DVD as you would assign a textbook, problem solved. So now the student can easily get the DVD. And yeah, you can see how far back I'm going from Netflix. Now you can stream it from so many different sources legally. There are programs on this campus who have bought licenses where they have access to a special library of motion pictures and everything else. And so they can say, here's the link to this video. It's password protected. Only the people in the class can access it. And they pay a, they pay, pay a fee to be able to access that. Ironically, or not ironically, uh, coincidentally, I should say, the online video company is the same one that provides the licenses for, say, movie night and the student union. So it's it's a company that's kind of put themselves in a very unique position to assist education from that point of view. Right. I once helped with a film course as an instructional designer, and there were, I want to say, 15 to 20 films shown throughout the, the semester. And I had to get permission from our library, from the, the university's library, to show those clips. And those clips were actually streamed from the library's, I don't know if it's from their servers or from a server that they paid for, but somehow those permissions had to be obtained. And if they didn't have the movie, I had to request that they try to get it. And most often than not, they were able to, which is one of the benefits of working at a, I guess, larger university. Although I really don't know how that stuff works. But there was just one or two, I remember, that we could not get the uh, permission to show. But, but you know, the, the, the real big issue comes into play where I don't want to show the entire film. I just want to show a part of it. So let's say, you know, here in a, in a nursing school, we want to show a clip from a movie. And we're talking maybe a three-minute clip to show a specific interaction of, of a nurse in a healthcare setting whether it's home care or whatever, that's harder because, you know, what, what, you know, that's where the, you know, you start to go, okay, what can I do? How do I do that legitimately? 
Yeah, and a lot of the time you'll find advice that says to use the smallest possible portion of a copyrighted work, but how do you get down to that small portion you need? It can be a challenge as well. Well, And and here's where it's confusing. DVDs, if you own the DVD, is copyright protected. It's against the law to break that copyright protection. Oh, but wait, the Library of Congress every couple of years renews the exemption allowing you to do that, to make a backup and to do things for educational purposes. But what happens when they don't renew that? For educational purposes. Yeah, um, for a number of different reasons. And education, I believe, is one of them. And that's where it gets confusing. The law says one thing, but the Library of Congress can override it for X number of years. And and so it may be legitimate to do it this year and not next year. So it gets to be a very murky thing. And that's where... I lean, as you as you already alluded to, the librarians. Librarians can be very helpful. There are databases out there that the university can subscribe to or has subscribed to that solves a lot of our problems for us. Yeah, there are some excellent resources, particular to ASU through the library, that speak to many of these issues. Yeah, the Films on Demand is the first one I think of. The one I was looking at earlier was uh, the Exceptions for Instructors in U.S. Copyright Law was a really neat resource that you could go through, and I forgot to find out who created that, but it kind of walks you through what it what it is you're using and how much you're using and helps you decide if you're um, under copyright law or not. So we're broaching uh, fair use territory here, you're talking about amount, right? The amount that you're using of something. I think the language that's often used is a representative sample. So you're allowed to take a representative sample that's enough, again, if you're teaching a history course, to get across that point for that lesson. And there's, uh, from how I understand it, I'm always, I'm going to say that every time, <laughs> from how I understand it, there is no black and white here. It's a grayscale. So you basically have to imagine that if you're arguing your case in court, can you make a strong argument that what you used was a representative sample from the film, chances are if you use five or 10 minutes, you could probably make a stronger argument than if you use the entire film. And that's a good point because a lot of times people like to quote a specific number and you know we often hear, oh, I, only, I didn't use but only 10%. And once you go over 10%, it's no longer fair use. That's not true. And, and even if you only used a three-minute clip from a three-hour video, if it's a film and you show the three minutes where, let's say it's a, one of those murder mystery type things, and you show the three minutes where the whodunit is revealed and, you know, that's the heart of the work. That becomes another bit of language that makes things confusing. I mean, it, it, and that's one of the things we're spending a lot of time talking about film, and that's probably one of the more difficult areas to talk about because of the fact that there's it's not just legal, but also technical issues to deal with. You know, some of the other pieces out there that I think, let's talk about something that happens, I think, more often, and that is journal articles. You know, we, we've seen a lot about that, and especially now that almost all journal articles that we're going to get our hands on are no longer physical, they're electronic. That's a bigger issue, and, and making sure that we're doing that correctly, or ebooks. Good points. So what practical tips and suggestions do you share with faculty when they consider using or adapting copyrighted materials? How do you start the conversation if they are unfamiliar with any of these topics? One, I always tell them to cite their sources. So even if they're adding a link to the resource in their shell or their learning management system, I always ask them to also add in this citation for it. And I usually refer them to, well, think about your students. You want them to write their papers and you want them to cite their sources. So isn't it only fair that you do the same with your sources as well? 
that's a really good point. And I'm going to take it down to a granular level we haven't gotten to yet. And that is images in a PowerPoint slide. How often do we have images from a textbook, from a publisher? When we switch publishers, do we still have the right to use those images? And that's that's something to be considered as well with the license agreement that we we purchase. We want our PowerPoint slides. We should acknowledge where those images come from, whether it's from the textbook, whether it's a creatively common licensed image we got from the internet. All because I found it in Google doesn't mean it's legitimately usable. And it's such a common practice for anyone to go out when they're building something and they're not necessarily aware of copyright, or maybe they are aware, but for them to go out looking for, let's say, Google Images. So a lot, some of the LMSs, the learning management systems in education are starting to integrate tools for them to automatically search for images that are um, part of the Creative Commons domains. Mm-hmm. For example, Canvas Instructor has a tool that allows you to go through Flickr and go through their specific Creative Commons domain area to find copyrighted or open material for them to use in the course. Yeah, I was going to say, I believe Google does too. You can actually set a filter in the advanced uh, search options yes. that let you yep. search for images that you can use uh, without but, needing to ask permission. But as you said, that's the advanced settings. And so you have to go to an extra screen to turn that on. You also have, I believe, four different settings. So you have to be aware of what each of those settings means Mm. and how open they are. Sure, sure. Yeah, so for example, every PowerPoint slide deck I build contains either images I created myself. Well, actually, there's four categories. Images I created myself, images from the institution that was either provided by ASU or uh, were part of our library database, images from Creative Commons, or a royalty-free database that I was able to access and I'm a member of or paid for. Great tips. So I attended the Distance Teaching and Learning Conference in Madison, Wisconsin last week, which is a really cool conference, by the way. I highly recommend if you get a chance to go to check that out. And I was fortunate to be able to check out a session from a Thomas Tobin. And he's a very interesting character. He's got a really cool mustache. I think it's what's called a handlebar mustache. He actually twists both sides like, I got to figure out how to do that, but I can't grow a mustache like that yet. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of wax. You, you, I, okay, it's wax. Is that what it is? Oh, yeah. So, uh, really cool guy. Um, so, I'm going to read his bio here real quick, just to give some context. But he is a faculty developer and professional higher education consultant. He is an internationally recognized speaker and author on topics related to the quality of in distance education, especially copyright, evaluation of teaching practice, academic integrity, and accessibility, and universal design for learning. So I went to one of his featured sessions on copyright, and I learned a few things. One, this guy's really into ninjas. <laughs> <laughs> he changed the name at the last minute to how to be a copyright ninja or something to that effect. And then all of his PowerPoint slides had a very strong ninja theme. But they were all images that he didn't need to get permission for. So, you know, that was pretty neat. I was actually quite impressed that he was able to find, uh, I don't know, he had 15, 20 slides of ninja-related images that, were, that weren't, or that were available to use, you know, so. There, there's, and that's just it. Using these tools, there's actually some really good stuff out there. Apparently. I mean... No. Well, and people, they have websites that people can share their images and, you know, sell them so that people can buy little licenses for them. So there's quite a few resources. Well, his presentation was all about making it easy to understand copyright so that he gave general guidelines so that you fall on the right side of the law, say, like 90 percent of the time. Right. And uh, I mean, it was very needed, especially for me, since I had been doing 
things wrong for a little while now. So <laughs> I, I was very obligated to go check this out. But the first question he says to ask is, did you make a copy? Right. And if you did, if you didn't make a copy, nothing to worry about. You're good to go. So that means like linking into the library database for the journal article or linking to YouTube. Ah. No copies made, therefore you're good. Great Correct. point. So let me ask this. Is providing a hyperlink to a YouTube video considered copyright? The courts have already ruled it does not violate copyright. And Thomas said the same thing, right? What about embedding a video, or should I say, embedding a video player that's streaming from outside of the LMS? For example, an iframe that streams a YouTube video. Not a copy. Yes, yeah, not a copy. And if the LMS provide, I mean, sorry, the, not at the LMS, if the uh, site that hosts the video provides it or document, not a copyright violation. All right. Yes. So we're in agreement so far. So in those situations, you're good to go. However, if you did make a copy, and I guess I'm trying to remember the exact definition, basically creating, putting something into a fixed format is considered a copy. That's how I understand it. Um, so you either need to get permission or you need to assert fair use, right? So getting permission, that's, I mean, we understand. You have to contact whoever owns it and ask them if you can use it. So fair use is where things get a little murky. And this is where you have to ask yourself, are you in pain? That is, are you acting within the framework as delineated by the acronym P-A-N-E? Jeanette went over it earlier in her monologue. So you have purpose, amount, nature of the work, and economic impact. So you have to consider those things. It's a great way to remember. Yeah. Yeah. Are you in pain? Very succinct. <laughs> Thank you for sharing your learning journey. Yeah. Can I just say I'm in pain anytime I talk about copyright. <laughs> well, I was obligated after what I had done these past few years. So. <laughs> and you know, it's and, and I want to hit the economic one because I've heard an, ex, uh, an excuse is the word I'm going to use. I'm not making any money off of this, therefore I can do this. And the answer is not really. It's not about you making money or you selling or whatever. It's about are you impacting somebody else's economic as well. So you know, if you put the latest, you know episode of Game of Thrones online, you know, you're hurting HBO and their production company's bottom line potentially. While you may be making right. no money off of it, you're hurting them. That's an economic impact. And this goes to the end part of the acronym, uh, nature of the work, is what you are making copy of factual or creative. According to Thomas, if it's factual, then you have a stronger argument for fair use. If it's creative, then things easily can get a lot murkier. However, there are there can be exceptions. Like if, if your course is about poetry and you make a copy of a poem, that's technically a creative work, but then again, that might fall into a representative sample. Are you using enough to get the point across? And, and a word that we haven't brought up yet is transformative. You know, this goes back to the mix culture. And so when we think about student assignments, you know, mixing and matching things into something different that's transformative. So there's a great video out there that explains fair use and copyright, and it's totally using Disney movie clips, and it presents each word from a different film or phrase. And so that's a transformative work because it's taking essentially, what, a dozen Disney movies and chopping it up into tiny little pieces so that it forms words to to tell a whole different story and it's transformative and, then, and that's something to remember because we're talking about copyright for faculty but we got to remember copyright for students as well so when we ask our students to do projects we need to be mindful of what they should and should not be doing as well and and help them get a good start on things great point especially if they have to use pop culture and some sort of multimedia presentation 
Yeah. Have to are or choose to. Fair choose use? to. Are memes fair use? Because memes are all over the place, but who originally made that meme? Oh, wow. Brand new territory here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, that that's a great question. And I'm going to say in the murky world of law, it's not been tested in court, and I don't want to be the one to find out, <laughs> but I'll still make my own memes. Yeah. But I'll do it with clips that are already out and... You know, and then that's just it. You know, some people put images out there saying, meme this. And so those are clearly usable. But, you know, someone doing a screen grab or taking somebody else's clip art that was for sale, that's a whole different story. I mean, for an example, we all know that that great kid with the the, the little the baby with the, the sand and the fist and the determination look. Like success yes. kid or the something. The success kid. Yeah, thank yeah. you. I have that original clip art. I bought that from iStock years ago and have used it numerous times. But yet that same image is now out and about freely available because of that. Now, obviously, you know, that economic impact has not been determined and no one's bothered to do anything to stop it. And that's fine. That's their choice. You know, but I bought that. So I use that freely. <laughs> so you upheld your moral obligation. Well, I bought it before it was a meme, actually. Oh, really? I bought it right in the very beginning. The meme hipster. He knew no, it was cool before it was cool. I just had one image that was lucky. <laughs> well, and you could argue that under fair use, memes might fall into the categories of criticism and comment. Mm. So there may be some Which is the purpose room. P. Right. Right. Absolutely. And that was actually a perfect segue because the last question is for Stephen. Would you like to share any scary legal challenge stories or case outcomes that might impact an educator's decision around using materials under fair use. I mean, there's lots of scary stories out there on how somebody did something and they got in trouble. I'll start by saying I did a workshop a couple of years ago and the presenter, or I attended a workshop, and the presenter began by saying no faculty member in the history of higher education, higher education has ever been sued for violating copyright. And we all scratched our head and we all did a bunch of Google searches and, and, and it appeared that they were correct, at least when they said that statement six, seven years ago. Since then, we have seen some institutions definitely sued for copyright violation. The biggest ones that you see are when people are going to their university library and just doing wholesale downloads of journal articles, not for their own use, but maybe for internal departmental use. So it's easier to get their hands on it outside of the library in case it ever goes away and the, and the library doesn't pay the subscription fee anymore. I think that's probably my biggest piece of advice right there is if you want to avoid litigation, download personal copies for yourself. Feel free to do it in case it ever goes away, but do not distribute them. And that's and that can be frustrating and difficult at times because you have that journal article you want to share with a class, but you cannot find it legitimately online because, say, your institution stopped paying the subscription to that journal. I would also recommend always link to that journal because the librarians love it when you do that because every time the journal is accessed, every time that issue is accessed, they go, people are still using this. If you download it and you distribute that single download – not only are you violating the license agreement that the university has or the institution has with the publisher, you're not letting the library know how valuable this piece of information is. So every single time a student clicks on that, that tells, you know, you have 30 people in a class, that's 30 reads to that journal. 
the library goes, oh, people are reading this journal. We should keep that subscription. Um, YouTube and other video sites are fantastic. If you create your own materials, think about sharing them under Creative Commons. You know, make them available for other people to use because it could be useful and it kind of helps contribute to the community of creators because your odds are you're going to find things out there that, that you want to use. There's a lot of statements out there that are overbroad that says you can't do things. And one of my favorites is um, the if whenever you watch the Super Bowl or major sporting events, but the Super Bowl in particular, you get the you know accounts and descriptions of this game are not permitted without the express written uh, consent of the NFL and blah, blah, blah. That technically means you're not legally allowed to talk about the game after it's over to anybody else. That technically means that a lot of things. And so I know one law professor vi took a video clip of just that statement from the Super Bowl, put it on YouTube, and it got she got a takedown notice. And she eventually ended and she eventually sued the NFL, saying your statement's overbroad and your use of copyright was overbroad. And so, you know, because it was just the the statement from the game. It wasn't the winning touchdown. Who cares? Taking on the NFL. That's yeah. That's that was she was impressive. That was that was an impressive uh, situation. I would say for faculty, the best thing to do is. Don't download and you know unless you're doing it for yourself. If you wrote an article, again, just use the link in the library. Make make that a valuable piece and and just link out the things and go from there. Great tips. And for the record, we don't recommend suing the NFL. <laughs> well, gang, we've covered a lot of ground in the mysterious world of copyright. Thank you for sharing such great insights and tips. I'd also like to remind everyone that we posted some excellent resource links in the show notes for this episode. If you, our audience, would like to share your favorite resource or to engage in a Twitter therapy session about copyright anxiety, feel free to reach out to us. Thank you for joining us, non-lawyer types, in exploring copyright for educators with Celia Kachwatiwa, Stephen Crawford, Aaron Kraft, and myself, Jeanette Senecal. As always, we have untold levels of appreciation for our producer, Ricardo Leon, for without him, we would have nothing on which to apply a Creative Commons license. You can reach us on Twitter at IBD underscore podcast. That is IBD as an in instruction by design underscore podcast. Or you can email us at instructionbydesign at asu.edu. To find previous episodes, please visit our website at links.asu.edu slash IBD underscore podcast. This podcast was produced by Arizona State University's College of Nursing and Health Innovation. And now, an IBD podcast special presentation, sound check. I said, yo mama. <laughs> <laughs> like such a sixth grader now, it's great. All right. <laughs> Doing yo mama jokes, it's high quality. Yeah, we've devolved to that point. Celia, what's your favorite yo mama joke? Oh God, I don't, know. Your... I don't like them because I am a mother, so I don't like yo mama jokes. <laughs> Care to elaborate? <laughs> <laughs> um, take personally. I don't know, but on Costco, let me go back to Costco because <laughs> that sounds great. This is like <laughs> some such like beautiful noise. Jeez. <laughs> 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 um, nom nom oh, nom. Oh, sorry. Oh, we, remember we were supposed to get some smacking of. <laughs> well, I'm going on far because I'm like, mm -hmm. so yeah, we, sure. We our goal. In this episode, we eat in your ear. Ha, 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 ha.
Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> 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 so, 